Zigich. I'm Roy Vanwater. I'm Derek Neighbors. And today we've got a smattering of topics for you. Actually, we've, I think we've got three or four things. So, it's like a turkey buffet the day before turkey day. Yeah, it's like the podcast uh, potluck you know, sampler. So in two weeks, which will be when you're listening to this now. So right now, remember what Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner was like yet two weeks ago, which is tomorrow for we'll us. We'll see if this puts you to sleep more than the turkey. <laughs> okay, so the first topic we wanted to talk about was... Oh, geez, I forgot. Okay, yeah. We have a team uh, that we've been doing some work with that uh, they were doing two-week sprints, and then they went down to doing one-week sprints. They are doing Monday to Friday. And the topic kind of came up of, you know, it's really hard for us to get all the work done um, in, the, in that one week, and we keep failing our sprints. Uh, maybe we should shrink it down even more. Wait a minute. The first answer was maybe we should make them three-week sprints. Oh, that's true. Okay. So we shot that down, idea down. But we said, hey, maybe we should shrink it down and have an even smaller time box and get feedback even faster. So let's try and do one-day sprints. So let's meet in the morning, do a quick little kind of planning thing to figure out what's going to go on, organize the work, and then let's do the work. And let's But we'll in. spend all day planning. Yeah, so what happened? Did we end up spending all day planning? I was not there. No, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I think... Um, and a number of people on the team, their biggest concern was, you know, it seems that we spend all day planning regardless of what iteration size that we seem to have. And so if we went to a one-day plan, we would have to make planning happen a little quicker. And those of you that don't know the core protocols, they use the core protocol decider. And uh, the only way they could get the entire team to agree to a one-day sprint was to uh, time box planning to 30 minutes. So when the team decided to do that, I think the very first planning meeting, you know, they're still doing capacity planning where they would kind of give up, you know, put their hours on the board, how much time they actually had during the day. Uh, and then they would commit to how much, however, whatever work they could get done. And I think we had, uh, you know, I think for the week or so that we did that, it turned out to be that it wasn't really like a one day sprint because we weren't doing like a sprint demo necessarily at the end. Uh, but it felt to me more like the team was, they were really thinking about who was going to do the work and they were really organizing how the work was going to be done in the morning, which I feel like is something that is, you know, beyond what we were calling one day sprints. Um, you know, how did you think that went, Derek? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the few fundamental differences that I saw were one, they, they were actually very concerned about how they were going to do the work because they knew they only had a day to do it. And so when they were doing a longer sprint, uh, people would tend to kind of check out during planning and like, oh, Clayton's got this. He knows what's going on, so I'm not paying any attention uh, to the tasking that's kind of at hand, where I think they were much more focused. The other thing is they knew they couldn't really take in more than a story or two. And because of that, you know, you got a team of six, seven people. You've got one or two stories. By default, there's some swarming behavior and there's pairing opportunities that really came in. And so two things that that, that team was not doing well um, at all before was swarming and pairing. And so they'd have seven stories, seven people, seven stories all happening in isolation. Everything looks great. And they come to the last day of a one-week sprint, and I'll be darned that all seven stories are 5% away from being done. And so there's spectacular failure um, at the end of that. So I think that it kind of reframed how they thought about breaking down work. And they realized, I think, for the first time that three or four people could all be in the same story, and it could still be effective. But it required them to talk multiple times throughout the day. So were you guys actually able to break the stories down small enough that they all fit within a one, within one iteration? 
Um, I think in that case, they they didn't have any stories that would that took longer. I think they actually were a little more aggressive about negotiating scope, um, which I think they normally wouldn't have done. You know, they would have been able to say, "Well, we we've got a week to do all this stuff, so it'll all fit." Uh, but when they really got down to like, "Hey, let's really talk about what we actually have to do to get this done." Then I think they uncovered some of those unknowns that they would have found out on Thursday otherwise. So did you find that this made you really susceptible to people being late? I mean, because like, the first thing you're doing every morning is planning, and you want to figure out your capacity, and somebody shows up half an hour late, and they miss planning. Like, how does that affect you? I, I think it actually had the opposite effect. Yeah. I think people were more mindful of being on time, because one of the problems before is they didn't think the stand-up was very valuable, so... There was no need to be on time to the stand-up that you didn't get any value of, where they knew if they missed a day of planning that they would not understand. They would be significantly out of touch with what was going on for the entire day. So I actually think it made people value the start of the day much more than they did before. So at what point does it start breaking down? I mean, one day sprint sounds like you got some value out of it. Like, what if you did one hour sprints or one minute sprints or one second sprints? Like, where, so, where does it become unreasonable? So I think the breakdown that I saw that was huge was is very difficult for the product owner who is in charge of kind of multiple teams or not in charge of multiple, but has multiple teams on this particular product. Um, it's very hard for them to commit every single day um, with their workload to the same time. And since the team is kind of totally dependent on having new work to start every day, if if she was late or not able to be there, um, that could seriously impact the entire day for the team. So that was a major hurdle mm-hmm. um, to overcome. And then, of course, the other one is if you start to get bigger stories that don't decompose well to less than a day's worth of time for the entire team, or if you've got stories that you know rely on feedback from somebody else that it might take a day or two for those to go. Um, I think that that also it, it becomes difficult for how do you deal with those. Yeah, so to shift gears a little bit, um, Roy, you recently had an experience using the checkout protocol during a retrospective. I was wondering if you could maybe share that story. Sure. Um, we, we were having a retrospective. I think they've been going on for about an hour and a half. And I think, I think a little bit in, we decided to come up with a SMART goal. And um, the, the, the SMART goal is actually suggested by the Scrum Master. So it was, was kind of odd from that perspective. Yeah, but for, in general, the, the retrospective was going around in circles, and we were kind of lost to what was going on. And it wasn't—it didn't seem like it was moving forward at all. Like it was starting to repeat back on itself, and then just going through the same iterations. And so, the rest of the team that I was working with was all familiar with the um, the, the decider protocol. So I asked them if they were familiar with the core protocols, and asked them if they knew what the checkout protocol was, and they said no. So I explained to them how it works. You know that if. If you feel that you are not getting, if you feel that you are able to provide more value somewhere else, or if you feel like you are, um, I believe the the words Jim Jim uses is uh, emitting uh, emotional, uh, random emotional signals or something like that, like the idea of like you're just firing off random emotional stuff and like people can't or you can't deal rationally with the situation. So I explained to them that if, if that type of thing happens, you can say like I check out and walk away and and you know that there's. That it's, uh, you know, you're able to get out of the whatever the thing is that that um, you are participating in. So I explained to them how that protocol worked and then checked out, which I think shocked quite a few of them because they were not quite used to that type of thing. So the culture really isn't that you can ever, you know, the retrospective is like a meeting and you can't ever really leave it. Um, but in your case, maybe you felt like your time was better used elsewhere or you couldn't rationally participate at that point. Well, for me, I definitely felt like my time could better be used elsewhere. I was probably misusing the checkout protocol and that I was trying to use it to send a message that I didn't feel I could 
send an end mm-hmm. of the way, which is this is a waste of my time and I could I should do something else. It wasn't so much that there was something more important for me to do as much as it was a this is something that's not important at all. So I always, I always wonder when um, using the core protocols, if you have a team that is familiar with them and especially they're familiar with the core commitments, I think it's, you know, using them can be the super powerful tool. Uh, if you get a group of people or a team that is only tangentially familiar with them and doesn't really know the core protocols, I wonder if it's kind of like playing with fire, right? Yeah. I mean, I definitely stepped on a few toes when I did that. And I think some people were probably um, rightfully offended or at least hurt by it. Do you think you'll see someone use the checkout protocol in the future? I don't know. I hope so. I, I mean, as much as it was kind of a shock reaction, I think that if you had, I think I, think I talked to Derek about it afterwards, and like he was present at the retrospective as well, and, and he feels like if you were to ask anybody at the time, like would they want to leave, they would, they they probably would have said yes, right? Because I don't I don't think it was a secret that the retrospective didn't feel like it was adding value. Like I don't think I was the only one who had that impression. Um, so speaking of adding value, um, you guys have been working with a team that has tra- been trying to adopt um, like pair programming or promiscuous pairing and doing a lot of pairing with different people on the team. Mm-hmm. And I think that you guys are kind of facing that common criticism of pair programming that if I'm an expert or I think of myself as an expert, I can't pair with novices because they're too slow. They slow me down. I'd be so much faster on my own. Um, you know, is that an accurate statement? Have you guys been seeing something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's a little it's a little bit odd because, I mean, it's, it's not probably different than you'd see in any other organization, but one of the things that this particular team has a little bit of a challenge with right now is they've got a fairly significant skills gap between um, some of the people on the team. And so they were not a cross-functional team before, they are now a cross-functional team, and that has created significant skills gaps in both knowledge and domain as well as technical skills. And so um, early on, the kind of senior developers, for lack of a better term, uh, really didn't want to pair with some of the people that had a skills gap because they felt that it was really slowing them down. Um, I think at some point during retrospectives, the, the folks that feel like they're slowing people down, admit that they are slowing people down, but they kind of came to the conclusion, if you don't pair with us, how are we ever going to close the skills gap? And so they came up um, with one of the retrospective goals that the senior people were not allowed to touch the keyboard at all. And their kind of mindset there is if they're not allowed to drive, they're forced to teach us. Of course, this you know frustrates the developers to go a whole sprint without being able to touch a keyboard. Frustrate me. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I, I think uh, kind of the retaliation back was that we need to have uh, those with the lowest level of skill pair a fair amount of time together so that we don't have to pair with them and then it'll slow down. And I think some of that comes with, I do believe that there is a, uh, a matrix kind of out there where if you say two people of a high skill level pair together, they will probably go really fast, but they will not probably learn a ton from each other. They'll learn something, but not a lot. And if you have two low-level people or low-skill people pair together, they will go really, really slow, but they will learn a ton because they're both so out of water that they have no choice but to totally lean on each other to get anything done. And then any combination outside of that, whether that be two medium-skilled people or a high-skilled and a low-skilled or a high, you know, you're going to get some variation of somewhat fast and some learning. So what happens if you've got a high skill and a low skill, you're probably going to have a fair amount of knowledge transfer, but you're going to slow down 
significantly. And so I think the teams really struggle with like what's the balance, and they seem to shift from like one one polar to the other polar to where it's like no, uh, you know, senior developers can drive, and we have to go really slow so that we can, you know, so we think we're learning, and then it switches the other way that you know no senior people develop with low skill people so that they have to learn more and we can go fast. Um, and I think that uh, what we're seeing them start to understand a little bit more is that when they're actually more promiscuous and switch up, you know, at least once a day, um, that they, they get both met, right? So they feel like they're able to go faster when they're with one person and they feel like they're learning more when they're with another person. And I, I think that we're finding that that balance is, is striking pretty well for them. So one important thing about that, though, is that you're talking about this matrix as being applied to the same body of work, right? So two low-knowledge people working on the same thing that two high knowledge people would. And I think what we started to see is it's really uncomfortable for two low-knowledge people to work on something that's difficult or something that maybe requires a little bit more knowledge because of the fact that they don't have anything. But that is exactly what is required in order for them to gain that knowledge. And I think what we started to see happen is when the two when, when two people with um, low knowledge started pairing, they would shy away from the difficult stuff and grab the low-hanging fruit that they already knew how to do. So we ended up with this two, uh, was, was one pair of one pair, which was essentially like idealistically like high performing, but not really gaining much knowledge, and they were doing all the difficult stuff. And then you have one pair that was like catching all the low hanging fruit and cleaning up after everybody else, but not really learning. So now you had two essentially uh, uh, two silos where it was a silo with two people, right? Mm-hmm. That keep themselves who maybe were moving fast, but the two two low knowledge people weren't actually learning anything. Yeah, and, I feel like what I see more and more is the. You know, when I've paired with people that are very like novice or entry level, um, I try and make it very clear about you know asking questions, and I think most people are open to that. And they ask me all kinds of questions that I feel like when they're pairing with the people that are quote unquote senior developers, they'll ask some question about why do we do that this way. And a lot of times, the senior developer person doesn't really know, but that's just the way it's done. And if they were pairing with another senior developer person, they have both already determined that this is the way we do things, and there's no reason to ask that question. So I think a lot of people, will, the, the quote unquote experts get frustrated because it's like, I want to try and get this work done, but now you're making me, you know, think about every little, you know, nuance or whatever, every detail in this code base that I really don't know myself. And, you know, it's just aggravating. I feel like I keep seeing that more and more. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for those listening at home or at work or in the car, the moral of this story, uh, yeah, or the plane, the moral, (laughs) our boat, um, hot air balloon, (laughs) the moral of this story, in my opinion, is that one of the key drivers and benefits of pairing is learning and so if you you are not learning when you're pairing you're probably pairing wrong um the rate of learning is going to be dependent but i would say even if you're an expert with a novice when that novice asks those questions that you don't know that's an opportunity for you to know that you need to learn the material better when they say why do we use this plugin or why do we instantiate the class this way and that your gut reaction is, well, that's just how we do it around here, and you don't really know, that's a learning moment for you that maybe you're not as expert as you think you are. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really difficult for a lot of senior people to to say that or to even like admit not knowing something. Right. It, it's right. hard to admit you suck, for sure. <laughs> yeah, someone gave me this title, and I'm not giving it away. I'm going to pry it from my cold, dead hands. All right. All right, well, I think that wraps it up for our uh, our Thanksgiving edition of the Agile Weekly podcast. So uh, make sure to check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Agile Weekly. And you can talk about this episode and others, and you can like the page and get us some reach so other people can find out about us. Gobble, gobble, gobble. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.
there something you'd like to hear in a future episode? Head over to enneagramtech.com slash podcast, where you can suggest a topic or a guest. Looking for an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news, techniques, and events in the Agile community? Sign up today at agileweekly.com. It's the best Agile content delivered weekly for free. The Agile Weekly podcast is brought to you by Enneagram Technologies and recorded at Gangplank Studios in Chandler, Arizona. For old episodes, check out enneagramtech.com or subscribe on iTunes. Need help with your Agile transition? Have a question and need to phone a friend? Try calling the Agile Hotline. It's free. Call 866-244-8656.